I think they were challenged to find somebody who would go there who was excited to go there. And I was thrilled. And so off I went, and I had a great team there. You know, the other people on the staff were willing to try absolutely anything. And we did programs like Farm Animals Come to the City. And we would draw huge crowds for pigs in a playpen on the library lawn. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writers Block Podcast. I am Ron Block, and today we are continuing our periodic feature, Library Rockstars. Today, I'm so happy to welcome someone who has been vitally important to libraries, librarians, and readers for decades, Sari Feldman. Full disclosure, Sari and I have been close friends for a very long time, and it's been my joy and honor to witness her trajectory in the profession and the impact she has made on so many. I'm thrilled to be able to shine a light on her wonderful accomplishments. Welcome, Sari. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I will say that I have been in awe of your trajectory, and I'm going to take a lot of credit for pushing you into the profession. (laughs) As you will hear, it is a lot due to you, so it's all your fault. (laughs) Let me tell you about Sari. She grew up in South Fallsburg, New York. She's a graduate of SUNY Binghamton and received her master's degree in library science in Madison, Wisconsin. From there, she began her advocacy focus on helping the underserved. As her career progressed, she took on more responsible roles, and having worked with her early on, I joined the chorus of others who knew that she was destined for great things. She became an agent for innovation, both on the local and national levels. Recently, she's retired from formal leadership, but she's still active in libraries and in the American Library Association. But she's also enjoying more time with her family and friends. I can't wait for you all to learn more about her as we have a conversation about her life and about this amazing human and her importance and contributions to readers everywhere. How about that? That's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But Sari, let's start at the beginning. So I want to talk about your growing up. I love this story about how your passion for reading grew and when libraries became your focus for your life. I grew up in, the, in a very small town in the Western Catskills, and we did not have a library But my parents were readers, particularly my mother. And my sister was, my older sister was told to read to me every night, but she would grow bored. So I had to learn to read myself because she would start a mystery and wouldn't finish it. So I learned to read very early on. And then I was insatiable. Fortunately, a bookmobile came to town and I began to use that bookmobile on a regular basis. But I like to say that also my father would satisfy our reading 
for the summer, he would negotiate with the school librarian at the local high school, and he would take out a carton of books. Wow. Um, the librarian and my father would select them. It wouldn't necessarily have been the teen romances I was dreaming of for summer reads, <laughs> but we would read through that carton of books over the summer. And that was, you know, also part of my reading evolution. So you were already reading way outside your normal comfort zone. It's great. Yes. Yes. So give everybody, we, we did a little bit about your educational background, but I love to hear you tell the story of your career path. So do you mind just giving everybody a brushstroke of, of how you started in libraries and where it led you? So I tell the same joke every time I tell this story, and you've heard it a million times. I was living in Madison, Wisconsin. I was working the kind of job that lets you know it's time to go back to school. <laughs> I had my undergraduate degree, but I really had no skills or ability. I started to do some volunteer work at a one of the first rape crisis centers in America. And I soon discovered that I really didn't like counseling people, but I loved the information and referral part of the rape crisis center process. And a woman named Jane Perlmutter was in library school, which is what it was called at that time. And she said to me, you really should think about becoming a librarian. So I went to the University of Wisconsin, Helen C. Whitehall, and presented myself to Margaret Monroe, who was the professor I was just enthralled with when I did some research, that she was doing and teaching around reader services in the public library, this idea that people connected with books and they had informal but also formal learning from the reading that they did at libraries. And she looked at me and she said, well, I really don't know if I'm going to take you on as a student. <sighs> take a summer school course and we'll see how it goes. And I you know, I jumped through every hoop so that Margaret would take me as a student. And she was so important to me that she's one of the reasons my oldest daughter is named Margaret. Oh, okay. I wonder if I ever heard that before. I mean, I yeah. and, and actually, I, they met once. Like, I was very scared of Margaret Monroe. And anyone who ever met you would say the same thing. <laughs> she was a scary iron librarian who actually started her career at New York Public. But one time I said, Meg and Margaret have to meet. And she actually hugged Meg, which was shocking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you actually began working there in Madison, but then you moved on from there to, to other opportunities. What were right. some of those? So my first job, I, I worked in the jail librarian in Madison, Wisconsin, at the Dane County Correctional Facility, and that was kind of life-changing because I realized that the advantages of education and access to books and even more access to information could really change your life, could make the biggest difference. And, and I actually loved my experience there, and I learned a lot, and it matured me in some ways, but not every way. And then I went off to um, Illinois, where I became a teen librarian, and I wasn't much out of my teens myself, and I was 
always getting in trouble for doing things like playing frisbee on the lawn of the library with the teens that would, you know, come for my programs or having these dance parties in the library that were very noisy and other customers would object. But the library director was pretty open-minded. I became homesick for New York State and I came to Syracuse. And we met when I was the director of the Onondaga Free Library, a very tiny town library, that I was totally ill-equipped to be the director there. And I was definitely proving my immaturity at the time. And Rod Miller-Tuttle, who was the head of fiction and humanities, said that she had some grant funding at the uh, main library of Onondaga County Public Library. It was the old main library uh, with the big windows and glass glass floored stacks and that I could come and work as the teen librarian there. And so I made that leap where I proceeded to once again kind of raise the ire of a director because of some of my programming And uh, this time he had great recourse. Bob Kinchin, who was the director then, said that the grant funding ran out, and so I would have to go. (laughs) And I decided to use that as a time to start doing a little professional writing and to also think about going back to school, and I worked part-time. And then I worked part-time in the film library where I got to work with you on um, an almost daily basis, which was so much fun. And then we could just get into trouble together. We certainly did. (laughs) (laughs) Those are the old days, though. Those were fun. We used to get to judge short films. and (laughs) Right. But then, this is a very interesting twist. All of a sudden... People must have realized that some of the programming I was doing was actually catching the interests of the underserved in libraries, that programming in correctional facilities and programming that really used film and non-traditional media could have a great appeal to people. And so when the opening at Beecham Branch as the branch manager came available, they actually offered me the job to come back full time. And this, I just want to say this was in uh, the most, at that time, the most economically disadvantaged Syracuse neighborhood. And it, it was predominantly black. And I think they were challenged to find somebody who would go there who was excited to go there. Mm -hmm. And I was thrilled. And so off I went and I had a great team there of, you know, the other people on the staff were willing to try absolutely anything. And we did programs like farm animals come to the city and we would draw huge crowds for pigs in a playpen on the library lawn. And then we would read pig stories or programs discussing why do our children take drugs and having a panel of experts, or programs on the history of the civil rights movement with people who had actually participated. I mean, we would 
fill the meeting room to the rafters. I learned to play the Negro National Anthem and taught all the kids coming into the library how to sing it. I mean, we were just having the best time. And so I was there for about five years. And I think that experience also, you know, had a big impact on me because when I got there, people weren't borrowing books. Like that wasn't a primary role for the library. But by the time I made the transition to the main library, it was a great little circulator. It had an engine of borrowers because people were getting the reader's advisory they needed and the collection was reflecting the books people wanted. So I've talked a lot about things way in the past which is a sign of aging. No, 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 no. What it is, it's foundational. And I think what it does, it gives everybody an overview of some of the early things that drove you and kind of like put in, and as those of us who knew you knew, you weren't going to stay put for long. Right. So then I was married, I had my children, and I decided that I needed to I needed to be home on the weekend, so I needed to work a more Monday through Friday job. But what I discovered about myself was even if I wasn't required to work on the weekends, I was always coming up with some crazy idea that took me to the library on Saturdays and Sundays. But in the meantime, um, I went to the what was then the new main library in Syracuse, and I went and I started on this path to do every job you could ever do in a public library. I wanted to experience everything. And so about every two years I moved around. I mean, I did things like headed technical services, something, you know, really above my knowledge base. And I became the head of the system children's services. Again, no background really in children's work. So uh, I became the head of local history at one point, and eventually the head of the main library. But during all of this, we worked together on some great projects. We did. We worked on projects to really boost circulation in the main library. And we were just driving traffic. We were um, doing these great bestseller displays, and people were coming in in droves to get those bestsellers. And then we were pushing all kinds of other materials in their direction. During that time, I also worked with the Friends of the Central Library and I was privileged uh, more than 25 years ago to start one of the first library literary lecture series and to bring authors that I loved or that my friends loved yeah. <laughs> and get um, some FaceTime with them. So I started the series with Calvin Trillin. And uh, when I started a series in the future, I started again with Calvin Trillin because he was so important to launching that series. But one great experience that we had together was lunching with Pat Conroy. Oh. And uh, you went with me to pick him up at the yes. airport. We were both shaking because he was, you know, already a literary lion. And he was, we went to lunch. And I always say he was the kind of person who took his fork and dug right into your plate 
to taste what you were eating. And I did not <laughs> he, mind one bit. <laughs> he had no culinary boundaries, and he was just the most wonderful person. And again, when I moved on to other literary series in Cleveland, uh, Pat Conroy came again and pretended he had been my friend over the 10 years we had met since we had met the first time. Oh, no, he remembers it well. And I, I, I after you left yeah. that day, I got to spend the whole rest of the day with him. And it's just it's just been amazing yeah. to have been his friend and to know him on a personal basis, but also his writing, which, you right. know, is my absolute all time favorite. So fast forward to moving to Cleveland. So you started out with the Cleveland Public Library. Right. So I went to Cleveland. Uh, Marilyn Mason was the director and she brought me in to head the branches, the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. And then eventually we merged youth services into that mixture. And again, it, it was I was taking on a challenge because the branches were in underserved neighborhoods, almost all of them. Right. And they were also struggling to... They, they weren't struggling under like any kind of pressure from homelessness or crime, but they were struggling with not being utilized to their fullest. So lots of kids came in after school, but they weren't circulating materials. And we needed to find ways to really turn that around. And again, it was programming. It was programming that made all the difference to introducing these underserved communities to books. And uh, the branch librarians were just really outstanding and ready to do what it took. And we changed the whole kind of model to doing much more outreach and saying, we're not going to sit in these buildings waiting for people to come. We're going to meet them where they are. And then, of course, they came. And um, making uh, the library feel much more welcoming to people when they came through the door and that everyone was invited to what is the party of books. So it was really great. Yes, yes, it is. After I was there only a year, Marilyn decided to retire. And over the course of the next year, Andrew Venable was then appointed as executive director. Andy had been the deputy, and he made me his deputy. And um, he he gave me a, a kind of interesting set of responsibilities. He uh, kind of flipped my skill set and gave me facilities and security and technical services and um, collections and still some programming. And it took me a while to find my place in all of that. But once I did, I realized that I could make even more impact because I could renovate those facilities. Now, um, I didn't have a big budget. But there were branches that still had bars on the windows from periods of riots in the 1960s, and they had to go. And there were children's areas that were child-unfriendly. And um, 
And then in terms of security, you know, security was eating up a bigger and bigger part of the budget. So getting staff much more involved in managing behavior in the library. So it didn't need that much security every day. And then, um, you know, in the collections, again, now I was over, over uh, collection development and I could do really big projects and really big outreach around collection. And so two things I'll mention. One is that Ike Pulver, who's now the director of the Saratoga Springs Library, was um, at the main library and we cooked up this scheme to take the center of the book away from the Ohio State Library and bring it to the Cleveland Public Library. And uh, we were successful. I really led on that, but because I was the deputy, I could really push for that to happen. And then when Cindy Orr, who was um, the collection development librarian, met Steve Potash, who was starting Overdrive, and she was giving him some tips, she could bring Steve to me and I could convince Andy Venable, the director, to make that first investment in 2002 in an overdrive um, subscription. And so uh, we became the first public library in America to launch ebooks on the overdrive platform. And I, I the best way to convince Andy to do something was to stay really late after everybody else had gone home and to take in the paper for him to sign off and let him, may he rest in peace, he was a wonderful person, let him shout at me for 20 minutes about why it was a waste of time and money. And then I, when he was all spent, I could just say, Andy, just sign this. <laughs> Nobody wants this now, but there will be a reader in the very near future. And the Kindle was coming soon. And then everybody will want it. And you'll be first. And you'll be happy you were first. You're and right, so right. He it. should have known better than to, you know, oh, yeah. not, I could not trust him. you. <laughs> I would wear him down. You would. And I, I just have to say here that, like, that first contract in libraries for ebooks and how it's expanded since then it has changed millions literally millions of lives and i i think you know that's one of the one of your great accomplishments of so many but that really really had a big effect on people and you know steve potash you know i'm a big fan of his and you know now uh, a colleague but i i often say that if we didn't have steve and overdrive libraries would really have nothing because he was passionate about libraries. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't just a sale for him. He really wanted people to have that equity of access that comes from ebooks being in libraries. Yeah, and, and he continues that too. He's been such an advocate yeah. for years of libraries and yeah. he's really done a lot of things to help move it forward. So from there, you then went to uh, Cuyahoga County Public Library. Which was your my my last 
move. Well, or your big shining moment. I think it's kind of where everything in your career really came to be and all of the skills that you had built up and the experiences and relationships really you were able to utilize in amazing ways because you brought that library system to become the number one library system in the country now for 11 running years. So, I mean, that's that's a big thing. So can you talk about how your transition to there and what you saw and how how you kind of built it up to uh, what it is today? Well, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's thanks to amazing people that I worked with side by side with every single day. But I really wanted to be a director. And my family said, absolutely no more moves. Go without (laughs) us. They were very happy where they were. So Cuyahoga County came open and I was fortunate enough to become the director. And There were two things that I saw. One was uh, that Cuyahoga County Public Library was actually pretty far behind in technology. They weren't utilizing library technology or personal technologies offering through libraries to its fullest. So I knew when I was looking for a deputy director that I needed somebody with that understanding of public services, that passion for what public libraries deliver, but who really knew technology. So I was very lucky that, although Tracy Strobel didn't believe me when I said I was bringing her over to be the deputy of Cuyahoga County Public Library, because she was um, the web supervisor at Cleveland Public, she was the perfect pick. And I'm you know, so delighted, and she's done an amazing job throughout COVID, especially in steering Mm. that library forward. But I also felt that for a library that had the kind of reach of Cuyahoga County Public Library um, and many, many very well-educated suburbs, that they just weren't circulating enough. And I, I know circulation isn't the measure of everything, but circulation is the measure of book borrowing. And people were using ebooks, but the physical book needed to be flying off those shelves. So um, together with, you know, really, you know, the system leadership, but the system readers, we went about revolutionizing this whole idea of what libraries do with books. And around the same time, I had become kind of friend colleagues with Nancy Pearl. And in a joke, I said, Nancy, the library owns this little house. Would you come live with us and change us? And she said, well, Joe, that's her husband, doesn't want to come to Cleveland for the winter from Seattle, but I'll come a lot and I'll train your staff and I'll do things for your public and together we'll make a difference. And so Nancy came once a month for 10 months for multiple days, I think three or four days every time and just changed the culture because Nancy um, is interested in everybody and is interested in everybody finding the book they want to read. So many entrenched, silly rules that the library had went out the window. Many entrenched policies and practices went out the window. But more importantly, Nancy 
was able to get everyone talking about books. And um, she just did incredible work. And she kept coming back and refreshing us whenever we got a little stale. But um, this whole idea of reconnect with reading, our circulation began to soar. And, you know, it just climbed. It, it was astronomical. I mean, there were years where per capita, our circulation was number one in the country. And, you know, we're talking about per capita. That might not seem like a big deal to people. But when you compare the education levels of of the all of Cuyahoga County, not just the greater Cleveland area, with places like Seattle or Portland, it's much less educated and education makes a difference in reading. So we were reaching the underserved, you know, and then we built libraries to further invite people into the experience around books and learning. Right. So uh, it was just the greatest time and the luckiest time for me. And the impact of that focus is still felt every day. I hear from people that just hearken back to that time when Nancy Pearl was there and they just, they really absorbed it all. And so that was a great opportunity that you gave everybody. So uh, Blenna House will now highlight some of your national, <laughs> you know, there's more, there's more, <laughs> your national involvement. You, you became both the president of the Public Library Association and then subsequently the American Library Association. So a lot of our listeners may or may not know exactly what those organizations are. So if you could tell us a little bit about that and about their importance to libraries and to readers in general. So the Public Library Association is a division of the American Library Association, and the American Library Association is the largest and longest existing um, association of librarians in the world. So um, the American Library Association um, has between 50 and 60,000 members. And, um, you know, I would say the Public Library Association probably has between 15,000 and 20,000 members at any given time. And it's, you know, our professional associations, it's our people. But where does one get the audacity to run for these leadership positions? (laughs) I remember this. I was on the Public Library Board when I was asked to stand for president. And that was perhaps not that surprising. I'm passionate about public libraries. I've taught about public libraries. I've written, I've spoken. You know, I ran against the most admirable and talented person and squeaked through to become president. Between that presidency and the ALA presidency, I became the chair of the digital content in the digital content in libraries working group with, I was the co-chair with Bob Wolven, and we were trying to build a bridge between libraries of all types and the publishing industry to make sure that libraries continue to have access to digital content. Because the question at that time was not just how much the bloody things cost when libraries buy them and now when libraries lease them, because we're not really buying them anymore. But it was, will you even let us have them? And there were two published, two of the big five publishers weren't even giving libraries access at, at the time. So I became probably well known because I was speaking at every conference. I was writing in American libraries 
and the Washington office and Bob Walden, like one of the nicest people in the world, were making me look good and smart all the time. <laughs> and I was asked to run for ALA president and I said no. But I was in San Francisco having dinner with a bunch of my library pals, including Luis Herrera, who was then the director of the San Francisco Public Library. And my daughter, Bridget, was there with me. And everybody said, why don't you run? You'd be so good. And we need a public librarian hasn't done it in such a long time. And Bridget looked at me and said, Mom, that would be so cool. And I am not cool to my kids. So <laughs> I said, I'm going to run because she'll think I'm cool. And then I, and then my other daughter, Meg, Margaret, got really involved in my campaign. As oh, did yes, you, Ron. <laughs> as did all my pals. And I kept saying to people, I am not going to win. <laughs> there is no way I can win. The odds are against me. But uh, like in most things in life, I was all in. So I didn't think I was going to win, but I gave it my all and I won. So, yes, you did. yeah, it was just the most amazing thing. And um, the libraries were all the better for it. <laughs> so I, I will say that both being PLA president and being ALA president was super fun. I, I, I keep thinking about Julius Jefferson and Patty Wong and how they were presidents during a time of COVID and didn't get to do the kind of fun thing, not just travel, but, you know, you'd be invited to, um, you know, give a talk, give an award, give, you know, travel. Uh, it, there was a lot of travel, but, you know, just people were interested in you. You were a kind of superstar. It was your moment of celebrity. And I felt like Julius and Patty had all of the work and none of the, like, laughs somehow. And we laughed a lot, Ron. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> but, but it really it gave you a platform to take all of your advocacy, though, on a global scale. And right. I think one of the things that stands out for me personally was your Libraries Transform campaign, which has had such right. an initial impact and continues to this day to be used by libraries across the country. Can you talk about right. that? So um, the Libraries Transform campaign grew out of what would be my platform for my presidency. And I had a team of people help to evolve the ideas around it. And Hallie Rich at Cuyahoga County Public Library was very instrumental. But then Steve Potash and Overdrive stepped up to support it so that it became a big, splashy, professional campaign and not just relying on, you know, skills and talents that were available in libraries. And it was very successful, particularly in social media, and many states and libraries adopted it. And, and I, I think when I think about what's happening now in libraries, I keep thinking about the fact that libraries will have to transform again, because I think um, COVID has, again, profoundly changed libraries right. and um, what libraries will be as we move forward. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if transformation will be the right word, but libraries will 
in my opinion, need to get back to our core, what we're best at, which I think is what we're best at is readers and learning um, advisory, helping people, supporting people, making sure that there's equity of access and equity of experience and learning. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to, you can go onto social media and use the hashtag libraries transform and you will get a slew of the slogans used around the country and the things that are actually based in this platform, but how it's been used to uh, get the word out to communities. So I want to talk also before we go about um, your teaching and your mentorship, because you have made such a difference in so many lives, both as a adjunct professor at Syracuse University in the School of Information Studies, but also have taken on a lot of uh, people that you see value in as their mentor, me being number one, of course, um, from there. But what and you you give back to them so much. I want to know also whether that gives you. So, you know, I believe that I must leave the profession better than when I came into it. So it's incredibly exciting to see a pool of talent evolving and changing libraries. And um, I just love when uh, I say to somebody, have you ever thought about becoming a librarian? And their eyes light up. And I know they're, you know, they're going to be a change maker in libraries. And it's not, you know, it's not just readers. It's other sparky pieces right. about people. But um, usually it starts with a conversation about books. And, you know, there's a few people at Cuyahoga County Public Library right now that I um, help to get their library degrees. And then there's people scattered around the country that I help, you know, get into school, get internships or whatever it took for them to finish those degrees. And I'm the advisor right now for Hallie Rich to finish her degree doing her final paper with me. She's so gonna be amazing. Kind of she's, yeah. she, she is amazing. So it's just one more feather. Yes, but but, <laughs> but that's I get a name. lot out of it. I get a lot out of it knowing that you know these great people are in the profession. Right. And you don't just mentor and let go. You are with people for their life. And you mean a lot to all of us who have benefited from your expertise and generosity. So let's talk about reading. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. What makes a great lifelong reader? Why is it important? So I think that, you know, not everyone comes to reading. Not everyone is lucky enough to, you know, be surrounded by books. So I think it's often connecting with someone who helps you find that first or next great read, not feeling isolated around reading. And again, that's where Nancy has been so important because she's kind of codified some of these, uh, uh, some of these really good ideas around reader's advisory, that it's not about what I like, it's about what you like. So I think that, you know, I'm a person who resists book recommendations, unless I really trust the person. And Nancy educates people on how to build that trust quickly on the fly, on the floor, in the library. I think I wanted to tell you a little bit about being a lifelong reader and what happened during COVID. Yes, that was my, yeah. 
I'm living on Second Avenue in New York City, you know, a really, really hectic, busy neighborhood on the Upper East Side. I live across the street from a subway, one of the new glass subway stations. And during COVID, at night, I could not sit still to read, and I'm a night reader. And so I would like try to read, and then I would be standing at the window watching this woman exercise in a completely empty subway station. I actually was nervous for her. She was walking this escalator and counting the number of people who walked on the street because there were so few. And I was completely distracted. I just couldn't read. And I turned to a lot of comfort books. I went back to people like Jane Austen and Barbara Pym. I read mysteries and mystery series that I had read before. A bad sign for me because I'm a, I'm a there's so much to read in so little time. And then a really interesting choice. I reread the library book by Susan Orlean. And I saw it as a book of library resilience. And I understood that libraries would come swinging back with a vengeance as soon as they could figure out the best ways to offer service. I mean, just reading about that fire and what was lost, but people mourned and then they moved on. Right. And one of the people I've actually talked to who's given me some inspiration about libraries is John Zabo out in L.A. Because he's, you know, doing some really incredible projects, like he's doing a project on biodiversity with residents of the city of Los Angeles. And I think, you know, people like John Zabo, his staff, other really talented people across the country will discover new pathways for libraries. But that Susan Orlean book helped me to get back into reading. And then, of course, there was a wealth of books I had missed. I've been reading ever since. Good, good. Well, that is the perfect place to end. Now, I could talk to you for days and days. And, of course, I will offline. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know you've truly given our listeners a new appreciation for an understanding of libraries and librarians. You truly are a library rock star. And I'm so grateful I get to thank you publicly for all that you have brought both to me personally and to readers and library users everywhere. You are the best. Thank you so much. This has been an honor. I know I talked a lot, but I guess I always have a lot to say. You do. It's okay, though. We we need to hear it all. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. It's certainly been an honor to bring it to you. And we can't tell you how much we appreciate the support of our listeners. Please be sure to tell a friend. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsinfictionbookshop.org shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends in Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends in Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. 
Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.